0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, We're rolling out the big guns today because a lot is going on. So I'm joined on the podcast by um, my colleague, Bill Kristol. Bill, thanks for coming on. I
1: like the idea that we're the big guns, Charlie. Well, maybe really? so. I think a lot of our colleagues think we're just kind of the older guns, you know. Yeah, kind of I know they do. Worn down guns, tired guns, or whatever we are. But what was it? We at the Weekly Standard we had that disastrous, the in retrospect, a young <laughs> Fred. <laughs> I guess that was Fred Barnes' piece from like oh seven, oh eight, maybe even yeah, throw him young in guns, the you know. And yeah. of course it was it was correct in the sense that how did that work out? <laughs> yeah, I mean you saw Paul Ryan. I think it was Ryan, Cantor, and McCarthy. So analytically, yeah. you could say he was none of the three was in leadership at the time, obviously. And then he saw them all, you know, he was correct to say that these are rising leaders, but yeah, how did it work out for the country? Maybe not so great.
0: Young damn squibs. (laughs) So anyway, you know, since that didn't work out, we're going to roll out the old guns. Good. Um, So, Hey, I wanted to ask you uh, about your, your tweet. Uh, This, this is intriguing that with all the testimony that we're having, in front of the January 6th committee, and I want to preview what we're going to see later today, which I, I think is going to be a rather remarkable hearing about the attempted corruption of the Department of Justice. But the fact that, you know, have so many Republican officials have come out to testify in front of this committee, uh, as as well as just, you know, average public servants, nonpartisan public servants. And, and I, I, I see that you tweeted out this morning, great to see... So many Republican members of Congress and conservative elites expressing support for Ruby Freeman and Shane Oz really cluttering up my timeline.
1: Do you think sarcasm works on Twitter? I'm a little worried about that. There needs actually. to be a sarcasm button there. So. I, I know, but uh, that was David Frum had tweeted something, you know, people who are correctly appalled at the threats against Kavanaugh and so forth should be appalled and should express that they're appalled by threats by the way these two women were treated and by others as well. The 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 speaker of the Arizona Senator, I guess it is her house. I can't House remember, house, yeah. house, yeah. So um I guess senators don't have speakers. Um and of course, it's been total silence. So far as I can tell, maybe I'm, I'm sure I'm missing oh, so, two people. Oh, so but, your
0: your timeline is not being crowded by Republicans. No, my timeline
1: right? is not finding a lot of Republican members of Congress. You'd think this was since she testified before a House committee. Uh, they both testified before a House committee. You'd think there might be people in the House who would say, "Just want to say, I'm um, as a Republican elected Republican. This is terrible what people have done, and anyone who's doing it in the name of helping the Republican Party should or helping conservatism should cease and desist." You know, but I somehow. Happens, and not even from hard to believe, and I don't National Review, Wall Street Journal I don't really read them much anymore, but have they had full throated denunciations of this? Really, when you read it, when they talk about it, and you read about the, what happened to them, it's just appalling. These are volunteer, I think, not even paid, or maybe they get paid 25 bucks for the day or something, you know, uh, uh, election officials doing it as a civic duty. Tom Nichols had a piece you linked to it in the yeah. in the newsletter this morning. Really, a, a good piece, kind of uncharacteristic, I would say, for Tom Nichols, who plays the kind of surly, gruff, you know, yeah. hard-headed guy on in in his writing and on Twitter, and, and is that way to some degree, I guess. But you know, really saying how wonderful it is here in America that all these citizens volunteer uh, and help us cast ballots and respect our privacy and do it honestly and and uh, you know, as to say, on a kind of volunteer basis. I voted in person early saturday here in virginia um and i do like voting in person even if it's early because of you know scheduling things rather than mailing in the ballot And that way you get to see other people just doing this anyway tom wrote how moved he always is by this and, and how it's a wonderful kind of characteristic of american democracy but i haven't heard that from a lot of the well and, and a lot and, of the republicans and, and conservatives uh, around you know
0: well and his other point is this is what uh, trump and the in the MAGA world is taking away from us it's undermining right. it. it it's making these people Uh, This you know backbone of our democracy feel unsafe and you know you sent me a note yesterday which I put in the newsletter you know that for decades conservatives including the two of us have talked about this importance of responsible citizenship political engagement at the local level volunteerism civil society civil courage and here you have these examples Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss of that but we're not hearing anything. Like you asked me, what about all those intellectual conservatives who've kind of taken a pass on the Trump fight but continue to be very, very concerned about all these questions of civil society? And yet all we're getting is crickets.
1: Yeah, when you, when you gently say to them, you
0: know, maybe you could speak out a little more
1: on the Trump thing. Well, I'm really trying to advance these other issue agendas and very important. And I respect that, you know, to some degree mm-hmm. at least, that I think those are totally legitimate things to talk about in advance. Civil society, little platoons, volunteerism, but again, here you have an actual concrete example of it. Actually, they're pretty quick to denounce the left as they should when the left pursues policies or has an attitude almost that that denigrates or would weaken these kind of local voluntarist little platoon efforts. And then somehow when the right doesn't just sort of denigrate it or undercut it as a part of public policy, but actually just to, you know, tries to destroy these people's lives and goes after them in the most... Uh, vulgar and, and really terrible way and violence threatening way not a heck of a lot of this is really what destroy this is what destroys civil society i mean if, yeah, you know, yeah, I, the exactly. bad policies are bad we shouldn't undermine you know i'm for local voluntary institutions against certain aspects of big government for that reason but this really does destroy civil society <laughs>
0: Well, and quite literally. So going back to this, you know, Tim Miller also wrote something. We need more uh, Shea Mosses, and, you know, make the same point. You you and he, great minds thinking alike, you know, Mm -hmm. that Shea is exactly the type of citizen that the quote unquote national conservatives claim they're fighting for. She's not part of the woke elite. She doesn't dislike America. Before she was unfairly canceled from her job, she was a public servant who believed in the promise of America and worked a normal job in service to this country with dignity and She did so in part because her grandmother had instilled in her American values and a belief that voting matters. If she were white and blonde, and if this was some liberal professor unfairly targeting her, you could imagine that Shea would be a hero of the uh, Tucker Carlson show, uh, given a platform by the Daily Wire. But as we all know, Shea Moss was not valorized for her work ethic or service to our country in these quarters. Instead. It was conservative media that vilified her based on a lie, a lie perpetrated by the most powerful man in America who targeted her and demonized her. He called her a hustler, evoking the vile racist stereotypes he so often traffics in. She was singled out for smears by the president's drunk lawyer, a man who used to claim the mantle of America's mayor, not uh, Shea Moss's America. So you're going to get your reaction to all of this because you were sounding the alarm a long time ago. You were sounding the alarm on a really regular basis between November and January 6th. And you have written and talked about this and thought about this for the last year and a half. So what is your reaction as you're sitting watching this hearing, which recounts a lot of things you already knew? What is your reaction? How How are you responding to these hearings? I mean,
1: in, in sort of different ways to different aspects of it. Um, I'll come back to the hearings in general in a minute, but I, I the Tim was very powerful on that. He just touched on race in a powerful way, but not, you know, didn't dwell on it. I've got to say, you and I have discussed this a bit in the past, and, and Mona, and some of us who've been around the conservative movement for a long time. Uh, we really did think the racism was kind of on the fringe, and it was. I think kept there in some respects. I think we nominated honorable people for president and for most of the major positions, you know, and and they they kept it at arms length think occasionally really denounced it. Actually, to their credit. So. But you see this kind of thing and the treatment of, of these two women, and you just think, as Tim said, if they were, you know, uh, white and blonde, yeah. white women, you know, from Middle America, who were being threatened somehow or cancelled from something by the left elite, what kind of reaction there would have been? And it does make you wonder how much all along there was a kind of racial subtext to a fair number of fair amount of. Uh, a fair number of conservative efforts i think you've made this point before a very important point a subtext or a a recessive gene the way you put it originally years ago an excellent formulation Mm -hmm. is very different from a non-recessive gene and look people tried to keep it recessive and we all did and i tried to and i think with some success and you can't extirpate prejudice from the human heart so it makes a heck of a lot of difference if it's sort of kept under control and, and not you know indulged in publicly or if it just becomes a almost the banner of a movement, but it is for Trump. I mean, I guess that's what I'm coming to. So many people we know still want to, you know, the Republicans are good and they're okay. And Trump's kind of unfortunate, but ultimately it's a little bit of craziness and stuff. I mean, it wasn't just him though, right? And, and it wasn't just a, a few people following him who... Who indulge who indulges, in and, and it isn't just him who's not condemning this or not expressing sympathy for these for these two and for many others like them. And so I, the, the, I, I do worry, wonder, and sort of lament. I guess I would say, the degree to which uh, racial prejudice is really a pretty big part of today's what's called conservatism.
0: You know, okay, since you you make this point, I was talking with a very very conservative uh, friend who um, reacted to, you know, part of this uh, testimony as well, that Rudy Giuliani describing uh, these two women, he was saying that they were, you know, passing something back and forth, like it was heroin or crack or something like that. And, and, she, and she said, you know, I'm not usually the one who, you know, plays the race card, and, you know, sees racism everywhere. But that was kind of shocking because that was just so blatantly racist by Rudy Giuliani. And you look back, you know, at, at him. I mean, you want to talk about a guy that continues to revise his reputation and his legacy. He sees two black women passing something back and forth, and he immediately assumes that what they're passing, heroin or crack cocaine. I mean, this is not subtle stuff. This is he not doesn't this just is not assume just, that he it, he says it, right? He says I mean, it, yes. You right? know,
1: whatever his private thoughts, he's, you know, of a certain age and he whatever, you know, he can say people can't change entirely their their prejudice is over when they get bit. To say once you wouldn't have, maybe once you wouldn't have said it i don't know maybe you would have honestly but or maybe we would have not paid as much attention but uh, you know on the hearings as a whole i i gave a talk earlier this week to a pretty conservative centrist conservative establishment conservative i guess you say already business types a lot of from the midwest who i, I do think the hearings are having some effect on trump's standing within the republican party not maybe with the base i wouldn't expect to see massive changes in polls or there have been some indications there too but but among kind of let's call them republican elites i don't mean the super elites but influential local businessmen and women who have some you know clout in the community and who you know whose support whose donations candidates will want in 2024 local elected officials lawyers the kind of let's call them country club republicans broad swath of country clubs not just the fanciest ones you know new york or something and i think they would still acquiesce in trump unfortunately they would still vote for him in a general election but little strengthening i think of the can't we get beyond trump they're not going to repudiate him they're not going to say what we would want them to say or do what we would want them to do in terms of really that kind of cleansing you might say of the party but um i don't know if that's the right word but a kind of uh, you know uh, coming to grips with what happened still a lot of refusal to focus on really what happened on january 6th they they, they but they've sort of the hearings have made them Uh, a little more I think open to getting beyond Trump. And that's a good thing. I mean, I I believe me, I'm not looking forward to the DeSantis administration or anything, but it would be good if Trump gets weakened. I would say though, they, they still don't want it at all. Think about the fact that 147 or whatever it was, Republican members of Congress voted based on nothing to overturn the electors and so forth there's still a lot of denial about that side of things and the impeachment and the conviction votes and so forth and the ostracism of liz cheney and all but at least on trump personally i think there's some weakening of the attachment at least among that swath kind of of the of the republican party
0: so I was surprised by the emotional impact of Tuesday's testimony. I, I really didn't think that that was going to be one of the, the major events, but I, I think the the humanization of uh, what happened and the, you know the human cost of the bullying and the pressure and and all the threats. I think that that, that did have an impact, At least, and I'm certainly getting the sense that it had an emotional impact. I'm, I'm now my expectations for this afternoon's hearing, which will many of you will have listened to or or, or seen before you listen to this podcast. I actually have high expectations um as they connect the dots on this attempt to you know suborn the uh, department of justice into the into the insurrection and I mean, it sounds like they have some very very powerful uh witnesses who are going to be uh, testifying a former acting attorney general jeffrey rosen his uh, deputy richard uh, donahue uh, another doj official stephen engel these were the people who are right there and in the room and uh, threatened to resign if uh, if the president went ahead with the former president went ahead with his attempt to Corrupted the DOJ. And they're going to detail how Trump pushed the officials to falsely declare that there was widespread fraud in, in the election. Uh, they're going to trace his efforts to send false, fake, fraudulent letters to state officials. So I actually think today's hearing, it might not be as sexy, but I think it's going to be one of the most important of the hearing. They've all been important, but this one really strikes me as we're gonna see inside the Department of Justice how close we all came to really kind of a constitutional Armageddon. What do you think? I mean, I
1: agree with that. And I mean, one reason you know, joked earlier that you know I was alarmed between November 3rd and January 6th. It was honestly, I sort of downplayed, I don't think I fully appreciated the whipping up of the right-wing extremists and the Proud Boys and all that in January 6th. I didn't expect the Capitol to be stormed. I, I kind of underestimated how much of that was going on beneath the radar, beneath my radar at least. Out in the country Well, the one thing having been in the white house in the executive branch i do think i appreciated maybe a little earlier than some people was the attempt to suborn the justice department the attempt to put really dubious people in charge of the defense department and what that implied about what might be going on there and and so when bill barr resigned and announced his resignation which i think was mid-december and then left a week later december 23rd i think it was i mean i just thought are you kidding me? He defended everything else. He didn't behave very, in my opinion, very well in some respects, suspending the Mueller report and all this in many respects. But even he couldn't put up with this. Now, then he had that ludicrous letter praising Trump and yeah, didn't say a word, you know, in the middle of the whole mm-hmm. thing publicly. But I remember thinking that something bad is going on there. Bill Barr, having defended <laughs> everything he had defended, couldn't put up with this. They're really trying bad stuff. And I think we will see. So, We will see, I think, that in much more detail today, whether, you know, voters how much react to that. It's kind of, you have to sort of understand a little bit how the executive branch works, why it's so important not to let DOJ become the personal attorney for a corrupt, for a president who's trying to overturn an election. You know, that's really important to see. But on the other hand, I do think, again, this might really affect a certain kind of you know, there are a lot of lawyers in this country. A lot of them vote Republican, right? There are a lot of people who work with lawyers all the time, and their corporations and so forth. There's a certain swath of a kind of upper middle class, you know, Republican. I'm caricaturing here a little bit, who sees that and thinks, "Gee, you can't do that. I couldn't like be told by my corporate counsel, as a vice president in charge of a." you know, part of a corporation, that this, you can't do this, you can't use this marketing thing, you can't, whatever it is, right? And then just go ahead and say, okay, well, thank you for that opinion. I'm not going to go find someone else to give me a better opinion. <laughs> the other person doesn't give you a positive opinion either. The White House Counsel says, no, actually, Justice Department's right. And then you go to the phone book and find some ambulance chaser and say, okay, I'm just going to use the corporate resources to do something I've been told is illegal. It's a stupid analogy in a way. But I mean, I, I kind of think that would resonate with a certain type of a republican and again might erode trump's support a little bit among those elites you know it one other the point i'm curious what you think about this if it, i can just uh, yeah you've been very familiar mm-hmm. with you know how radio and television affects sort of public opinion uh, immediately and then over the little longer term i mean was in a conversation the other day and as well only 10 million people are watching these daytime hearings it uh, seems to be in the era of the internet and social media and facebook and so forth a lot of people must be seeing clips of this yes, and right. hearing about it the notion that well, watergate uh, you know there are 40 million people watching and now they're whatever the number was and now they're 10 but that sort of misses the point so i think a lot of people are seeing snippets hearing about it, getting stuff uh, in their Facebook feeds or on Twitter or elsewhere. Uh, and and maybe it's having a little more of a trickle-down effect, as it were, than the kind of raw number. Very few people are watching 90 minutes or two hours. I couldn't. I was on a plane Tuesday, so I didn't yeah. see this hearing that we're talking about. But I've now seen enough of it you know, that I feel like I really did see it, and, and I certainly had an effect. And so I've got to think that what if these hearings are – People are sort of missing a little bit of, of that impact, well, do you I, think?
0: I, well, I think that's true. I mean, first of all, you know, 10, 20 million is, is a big number, especially when we think about the numbers who watch cable television. But But you're right when you're describing that. I'm thinking of the way we should analyze, for example, a presidential debate or something right. where you, you have the initial reaction of, you know, people who watch the debate. But then you have to wait two or three days for the spin to play out and and the whether or not there are those riveting moments, those dazzling details that come out. And I think that this is the same way. Most people do not watch it necessarily, you know, in live, you know, at, in, in real time. Um, But they will they will be exposed at some point to the moments. And these these hearings have had moments. So you're absolutely right. Uh, You may have by um what you know 10 times as many people are going to be right. seeing you know clips of uh, some of the testimony or some of the video it, it's hard to know and again i think it's important to keep coming back to this point that you don't need to move tens of millions of votes you just need to you know change the minds of you know three percent or four percent and which is a great segue because i want to talk about this ron johnson story and hmm. a little bit about politics and i know you have you're a man you, Ron
1: johnson i like to always call him th- that th-
0: thank, you, know, thank like you so much to, for yeah. that Oh, so, so I, I got an email yesterday from a reporter who said, Could, you know, I call and chat about Ron Johnson. I wrote back, said, I would rather have root canal surgery than have to talk about Ron Johnson <laughs> once again. But sure, I, I, I will. But also with some of the polls that we're seeing, and I know that you have some thoughts about all of this. You know how there is this gap between the horrific numbers that Joe Biden is getting and the fact that many of the Democratic candidates for governor and Senate seem to be outperforming that and whether that actually means anything. So, okay, before we do this, I I just need to like, you know, eat the frog and just do this, the Rusty Bowers story. I mean, I'm I'm sorry, Rusty Bowers. you know, who was really kind of an unexpected star of the hearing the other day. I mean, we loved this guy. We we seriously loved him. We admired him. We praised this guy, you know, the honor, the decency, the courage, and I'm still really grateful for the stand that he took in Arizona. (sighs) But yesterday, AP reporter asks him, well, what would you support Donald Trump if he's the nominee again? And Bauer says, yeah, if he's up against Biden, I'd vote for him again. I mean, Bill, you know, facepalm, head on the desk. We've seen this over and over and over again. And I, the only word that came to mind was it's unfathomable to me <laughs> how you can experience what Donald Trump has done you're learning all of this and say like even bill barr who says that he's delusional and detached from reality says yeah i'd i'd, I'd vote to put him back in the old what is this help me on this one what the
1: fuck? i mean i guess what it is 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 a human instance a real instance of this thing we talk a lot about and social scientists have written articles and books about polarization right i mean this is literally what polarization means that that's someone who Sort of understands, or has experienced, as you say, really terrible behavior from his own party, from the potential leader, the once and perhaps future leader of his own party, who knows how serious it is, incidentally. Still, the polarization is so deep that he can't abandon the party or even that person. I mean, one thing not to abandon the party, but to say you'd vote for Trump again after. And I, I, I had a conversation with someone who's sort of in that camp the other day. I don't talk to that many people in that world anymore with this old yeah. friend. And you know, again, it's it's sort of incoherent from my point of view, the reasons. I, isn't democracy more important than gas prices? Well, yes, but he can't really threaten democracy. People learned a lesson, a little bit of the Susan Collins, you know. Oh, man. With, yeah. Look how many Republicans admire bowers and admire others and i think they'll stand up and maybe they behave the same a little more than they did in 2017 18 and or 19 and 20 uh, in, in congress and so forth so people have a lot of rationalizations but i think at the end of the day this is why people you know some of the political scientists who were alarmed about polarization i originally thought well they're overdoing it you know i mean okay the country's a little polarized it happens and we're not going to have a civil war outside 1860 hopefully and so mm-hmm. but i this is where you see how damaging
0: it is OK, so let's talk about Ron Johnson, who really has a problem here. Look, I've known Ron Johnson for a long time, and uh, he, lo- he looked rattled um, yesterday when he was pretending he was talking on the phone when he wasn't, which I think a lot of you know, senators and congressmen do. But he doesn't really have a good explanation for why one of his top aides uh, offered to deliver fake fraudulent <laughs> electoral slates to the vice president and again he's saying well this was staff to staff communication well no they're talking about a sitting united states senator handing the sitting vice president of the united states this fake set of electors on january 6th and as i i said perhaps unkindly the bottom line is that johnson is not that stupid he had to know what the context of the moment was what was happening on january 6th what was going on back home Um, so your, your thoughts about all this, I mean, I, I think that I, everything is very polarized here in Wisconsin. It's, we're on a knife's edge and, you know, people will vote for their, their, their own tribe, but it just does strike me that this seems very, very tangible that you have somebody involved in electoral fraud aimed at overthrowing the election, and that if he would have succeeded, it would have thrown out the votes of more than, you know, you know one and a half million of Johnson's fellow Wisconsinites, you know, two point eight million Michigan voters who voted for Joe Biden. I mean, that's that's a hell of a moment, particularly for somebody running for reelection like Ron Johnson. And he doesn't have a good explanation. Ford, except that he was really deep down that rabbit hole of the conspiracy theory here no and I, I guess maybe i'm wrong about this but didn't his chief i think it was his chief of staff yep.
1: uh text pence's legislative mm-hmm. affairs you know assistant to Correct. say hey my my boss or however you put it senator johnson wants to deliver something to vice president pence and the guy said no way you know so, so i mean i don't think you do that just on your own right i mean you don't say that your boss the senator wants to bring something to the vice president not an everyday occurrence certainly not on january 6 given what the thing to be brought was these fake elector slates you don't do that just as because some guy was got in touch with you and and you just uh, decided on your own to text the vice president's legislative affairs uh, aide so no johnson knew about it and he's dissembling and um Maybe it'll hurt him. So, on the broader, and I think it will hurt him. I guess, so on the broader question, I think it's very interesting. And there's a little, yeah, a little Twitter exchange, not exchange, just comment on this. And it's clear, and Simon Rosenberg, if you know him, the, the Democrat, yeah. has actually written quite interestingly about this and then been challenged by others. And I don't know who's right. So, well, here's what we know what we know is Biden is way underwater right now. In Pennsylvania, the last poll I saw, he was 36 approved, 61 disapproved. And Fetterman was winning the Senate race, the Democrat by eight points or something, and uh, Nine. Shapiro yeah. by about four, I think, the <laughs> governor's right. race. And they both had pretty good favorable, unfavorable. Now, you could say four against that guy. Uh, Mastriani is, is not great, but uh, still, it's, it's winning, and Biden's way underwater. So there's a decoupling right now in real time of the Biden approval, from at least some of these Senate and governor's races, especially where the Republicans are really bad candidates or extremists and the Democrats seem sensible and often have personal decent approval ratings. I think Shapiro is probably better than uh, your man Everson, Wisconsin, but Whitmer, but you know, they're not way underwater like Biden. And one point of view is, okay, that's, you know, these these are real polls. This is apples and apples. I mean, this isn't the same poll, these results. This isn't like playing with numbers, right? People in real time are saying, I don't approve of Biden and I'm willing to vote for a Democrat, for governor or senator. I think that could sustain itself. I think you could just have a different phenomenon than some of the social science types are used to, where the presidential approval kind of just doesn't, uh, transfer that much biden is sort of in his own world up there in the white house and people look at the congress and they maybe they even want republicans to win the house that's a little different but they look at this actual statewide candidate for senator and especially that's if a governor where they have real implications for their lives and for the election 24 and they think no that's a bridge too far i think that could hold through the election or this is the counter-argument these things tend to kind of get pulled back to the president's approval. Amy Walter had a formulation for it. It's like the cyclist who gets out in front of the rest of his team. I don't know anything about cycling, but I guess in the peloton, but, you know, he's like the the, the sprinter, but then he, the rest of the race, the rest of the crowd catches up to him, you know, and, and that sometimes does happen in, in races too, that the kind of individuals right. positives get dragged down to the party. The party's numbers get dragged down to the president's numbers. So, it'll be interesting to see i mean i think there are things you could do as a party the democrats could do to try to keep these individual candidates up there keep the republicans uh disqualify the republican opponents as much as possible and frankly not make the race about biden the trouble is the biden administration probably thinks we got to help you know we we got to keep proposing things because we got to get our boss's numbers up but actually it's hurting it's hurting i mean here, do this thought experiment if biden just hadn't say anything about gas prices this week of course it's hurting the Mm -hmm. Biden administration hurting democrats but if he had just said look i'm focused on a nato summit next week i've got ukraine here's my here's what i'm doing in this area whatever Uh, we're looking at uh, helping states who want to preserve abortion rights to do so whatever he said right i mean you know there are plenty of things he could have talked about instead because it's a white house and this is how white houses are they think Biden's way underwater on gas prices, we have to have a ludicrous, honestly, just ridiculous (laughs) gas holiday proposal, which then, of course, all the Democratic candidates have to comment on. So do we have a Biden White House that could almost willingly step aside? I mean, the the ultimate example of this would be Biden saying he wouldn't run in 2024, which I would also be fine with, but that's not going to happen in the very near future. But in a way, openly, sort of purposely recede to let a reasonably popular Republican like Josh, a Democrat like Josh Shapiro and in 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 pennsylvania uh and a reason running against an unpopular republican to let that advantage stick and not get dragged down by biden i think it's an interesting question of almost political discipline i don't have great faith that the democrats can pull that will pull that off i i think the biden white house will will think it all depends on them and actually put themselves right in the middle of everything which is not wise at this point
0: yeah i i think you know amy walter has a good analogy you know she talks about you know the fact that it's good news that senate democrats are outpacing biden's numbers in their states and as she points out you know the the gop's only begun the campaign to link them to biden and to hammer them on other stuff and here's her analogy it's like a a cyclist in a breakaway once the peloton starts to pick up their pace and chase that lone biker gets caught (laughs) so Back to Ron John here in Wisconsin. I mean, here in Wisconsin, Biden is underwater, you know, uh, you know, 40% approval, 50% uh, disapproval. Uh, Johnson, um, however, is also underwater. He's got a 37% approval rating, 46% unfavorable. So even though you have this massive Republican wave building, he's running even or behind uh, Democrats who are all, I mean, very, let me put it this way, um, not well-known, uh, Democrats, you know, Mandela Barnes, who I think has got a lot of baggage, um, leads him 46, 44, well within the margin of error. Uh, Sarah Godlewski, uh, 45, 43, uh, Tom Nelson, of 44, 43. So this just said what you're describing that, that there is this disconnect. The other question, of course, and we don't know this, and this is all speculative, but even in a massive Republican wave. It is possible the Republicans blow it just out of like weirdness. If they nominate Eric Crichtons, you know, with a you know fascist gun hunting rhino ad in in Missouri, Herschel Walker, who is a serial abuser, liar, just whatever, you know, Senate candidates like this or Dr. Oz, uh, you know, the New Jersey millionaire um, who's running in in Pennsylvania, you know the, you could you could manage to blow um, their chances of winning the Senate by nominating these very strange, embarrassing candidates that might fall short even in a wave election year? You know, I Absolutely. mean, are they, are they too strange to win? It's happened before. And so we just don't know what the dynamics are this year. No, and that's John, right. I Johnson think- would be one of them. I mean, yeah. you know, Johnson, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Eric Greitens, there goes the Republican chances for the Senate right there yeah, I would say even with just Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, yeah. Yeah. it probably goes unlikely yeah. to pick up more than two Democratic seats.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's really true. And I don't know. And I think this is a point Rosenberg makes. I mean, it's not obvious it's going to be a massive wave. There will be a tide, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, and right now, it's about three points in the generic ballot, which isn't big enough to really sweep everyone out. I mean, that that will be a. It's a bit of a. If you want the analogy again, it's a bit of a drag. Uh, it's a bit of an uphill ride, but it's not impossible now. People who've been through this before say the wave doesn't break till late. If you want to you can yeah. use the, the metaphor of the wave, the one reason it's used a lot is you look out into the horizon and it's like just the ocean looks okay. And then as it gets close to shore, you realize you, that's a big wave. And that could happen. That happened in 06. I remember George Allen here in Virginia who was ahead and was thinking of running for president in a way. He was pretty popular, made one a couple of mistakes, and then the whole wave came in in 06 against George W. Bush and the Republicans, and Allen lost here in in Virginia. So, at the time, kind of a Republican-ish state. So, uh, it could happen. I, I'm a little less confident than most people that it will. Though I I do think people are just too quick to, oh, history shows this, and and, and it's also recently people have lived through. 06 and then 2010 and then 2014 they just in 2018 they have just a presumption that it's always a wave but it's not always that much of a wave it wasn't in 98 no two and if you get uh, you know a bit of january 6th hearing a bit of trump activity a well bit roe of versus wade, wade. Yeah. you know and then this uh, then the particular extremist candidates you know all of it together could add up to as you, i very much think republicans you know uh, democrats right now i'd sort of bet a little bit over 50 50, that they have a little better than fifty-fifty 50 50 chance to hold the Senate House. The House is more susceptible to just the usual off year currents, and
0: I think that's going to be hard to hold. But well, except that there aren't that many competitive seats anymore. You know, I mean, but there are fewer
1: seats. So I think if they lose the House, they'll lose 20 seats. And I, my right now is what I would say and lose therefore have the Republicans would have a, you know, 12 something seat majority in that something in that ballpark. I don't think we're looking at a Republican 40 seat majority. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic, but I also am open to the proposition that, and the final point I just make on this, even with the Biden question, though I think there's a lot of decoupling, sort of matters if the, you could argue the bad news is in. Things aren't going to get even worse uh, on yeah. the economy, on gas prices and so forth. They're already kind of discounted by the political market, if you want to call it that. And therefore, you know, we're sort of seeing the bottom of Biden. But I've got to say on that, I'm a little worried because uh, you could, we could have like inflation and a recession by October or something, and and we could have various things not going great. And I do think the decoupling is interesting. I mean, Biden is so low... Pr- Low profile—that's the right word—just makes so little news, honestly, and is so far from people's minds that if you're living in Pennsylvania, do you think I can't vote for Josh Shapiro for governor or for, jo- for Federman for for Senate because of Biden, or do you just think I don't know Biden? Who, what's, what's you know he seems too old in any way? I'm not really crazy about him running again, but meanwhile, I've got to make this cast these ballots for this actual senator and actual governor i could see the decoupling we're seeing now in the polls sustaining itself
0: and, then, yeah, and that's why amy walter's saying we have to you know see if you're the republicans and you need to spend tens of millions of dollars coupling you know locking them together
1: veterans that automatic vote for the biden agenda right and that might okay. work in some cases it certainly might work against some incumbents who voted over <laughs> and over for the biden agenda. i think in a weird way being a democratic challenger in that respect being veteran being godlewski i think that's her name in, in wisconsin yeah. I, think, I think would be a stronger candidate than mandela barnes being the democrat running totally. against uh Greitens can actually be stronger than being a democratic incumbent
0: so okay so this is like a slight digression here because I'm, i i know the democrats are never going to take my advice on any <laughs> of this stuff but but I, i'm sorry did you see have you seen a picture of dr oz's house in new jersey no i don't think so it's it is not, it, i'm going to guess that it's it's on the it's like, palatial I'm, I'm, side it, yeah yes exactly you can't describe it in mansion terms it is it is palatial it is just off the charts but it's also in new jersey right so i mean if these if these guys are any good at it you can imagine josh I mean, sorry, you could imagine Fetterman standing there in his shorts and in his hoodie, you know, with a picture of this saying, this is is Dr. Oz's house in New Jersey. I do not live in a house like this. Um, I actually, you know, I live in this house over here, which happens to be in Pennsylvania, unlike Dr. Oz's house here. And do you think that, this guy actually understands the problems of working class <laughs> Pennsylvanians. And, you know, play that card because right. at some point there is this huge dissonance. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not playing a... I'm, I'm not comfortable with class warfare stuff, but at a certain point, it's like, you know, how can you possibly understand how average people live their lives? And plus, you're from fucking out of town. You're from out of state. I you think you the make out of an town. issue of that. You
1: know? Yeah. And I think the out of town, out of state stuff seems to work. There was this primary, one primary last uh, Tuesday, I guess it was just Tuesday, a runoff in Georgia. And it was a very attractive young candidate, African-Americans so that have been Republican, I mean, who was endorsed by Cotton and Cruz, and all kinds of people, kind of future of the party. But he actually had sort of moved, from, I gather, from Atlanta to this district, which is, you know, for a little bit a ways uh, to kind of run uh, or had moved there and maybe not to run. But in any case, he hadn't lived in the district long. And running against this kind of more ordinary, you might say, pedestrian Republican candidate, they were both pro-Trump. So I don't think that was really an issue. And his only attack on this other candidate, since they didn't disagree on anything, and the other guy is younger, and I think served in the military and sort of seems attractive and impressive, was he's not really from this district. And the the other candidate won. Um, I think it's just six districts of Georgia. And so it does tell me that there is a lot, you know, districts and states still have some attachment to the notion that you should live in this state unless you're maybe hillary clinton moving to new york you know that's like the exception but new york's also different that way right i think it it does feel different it probably feels different in scranton or in western pennsylvania some rich guy from jersey is just showing up well trying to be your senator
0: speaking of messy wisconsin politics i have a little item in my newsletter today you know donald trump has for for reasons that are somewhat incomprehensible to me has weighed into the republican uh, primary for governor here in wisconsin i mean republicans you know really have no excuse not to win the governorship here this this year, except they're going to have this very, very nasty primary. So he has endorsed this out-of-state millionaire named Tim Michaels against uh, Scott Walker's former lieutenant governor. And So there's a proxy war between Scott Walker and Donald Trump here in Wisconsin. Walker pushing the lieutenant governor, former lieutenant governor Rebecca Clayfish, uh, Trump pushing this businessman named Tim Michaels who owns a $17 million mansion in wait for it, Connecticut. Wow. Now you don't think that that's going to be an issue in the primary here. So while Republicans, you know, would normally you'd think that it would be sort of lining up and you know coming up with a, their their message and pushing against the incumbent, th- this is going to be and this is going to be a food fight here. And, and actually, it's going to be much worse than that. What do you think happens? Do you have a view on who's gonna win? Or I mean I would assume that uh, Clayfish will have the edge because she just has you know has more grassroots support. There was a Marquette University poll out yesterday that showed uh, you know, that uh, Michaels is ahead like twenty-seven, twenty-six, but the margin of error in the poll is like six points. So mm. um but he's been gone for years, and I am just not sure that that a Trump endorsement, uh, you know, is going to carry that much weight when voters vote in August. But it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out. OK, so we've been talking about politics. We've been talking about domestic politics. We need to talk about, in just a heads up, the Thursday Night Bulwark stream will feature uh, retired General Mark Hurtling tonight talking about the war in Ukraine 100-plus days on. And I think that is going to be extraordinary the Thursday night Bulwark live stream, which is available to uh, Bulwark Plus members. People can watch it on on replay as well on the site. I think it's going to be very, very interesting because Mark Hurtling has been, I think one of the most sober, well-informed and intelligent observers of what's happening and what's not happening in Ukraine.
1: No, I think Mark's been terrific and I'm really looking forward to learning that from him. He had a very good Twitter thread a couple of days ago. being slightly more optimistic actually about the Ukrainians, uh, pushing back a little against the notion that the Russians are just kind of wearing them down and can do so endlessly. I have a conversation coming. I do those conversations with Bill Crystal yep. with Eric Edelman, uh, who had senior positions in state and defense and uh, the White House actually, and very sober and experienced uh, national security expert. Uh, that'll be out actually today at the same time as this podcast, mm. and people can watch that for an hour or listen to it. And Eric also, you thinks people may be being a little too pessimistic about the military situation, but he's worried, and I guess I'm worried too about, where we are three, four months ago, if if the Biden administration doesn't accelerate the delivery of weapons to to Russia, stop self-deterring so much, maybe break the blockade, which is doing real damage to the Ukrainian economy and actually to other economies around the world since all this grain is piling up in Ukraine and there's food shortages coming in places like Lebanon and Egypt. If the Biden administration isn't willing to yeah, it doesn't if there's such a reluctance to ever have American advisors you know set foot on Ukrainian soil to help them use some of these weapons, which means they need, takes longer to train them outside of the country. There's such a reluctance to maybe have a humanitarian convoy to escort Ukrainian ships out of Odessa or, uh, or Ukraine uh to deliver food which is incidentally they have every right to do there's no you know the the blockade that russia has is informal but they haven't announced one which would be an act of war because they want to kind of maintain this special military operation stuff and here on the energy policy just they've been so bad the biden administration they've done very little to relieve help relieve european dependence on russian oil and gas since god forbid we should actually like develop all this oil and gas we have so uh, that that will start to hit in october november as cold weather begins in europe and the russians will start just uh you know tighten the screws so uh, i would say eric and i think this is true of of, of mark hurtling too or I think we're easily okay in the short term, but worried about the medium term, worried that the Biden administration, which has done a pretty good job in some ways, hasn't done comprehensively enough a good job.
0: Why? Why have they been I don't know. Slow. It's a good
1: question. They've been slow, but also timid, a little cautious, I think. You know? Yeah,
0: I think so too. And we've had a back and forth, uh, even within the Bulwark family, about whether or not they have done enough, whether this is a success. And you know, m- much of what they have done has been successful, but Time and time again, there is that that self-deterring, and I won't say timidity, but just reluctance to, to actually do what is necessary. And now you, you're, you're mentioning the ports. Uh, obviously, that would be the most aggressive move because there's the possibility that you might have conflict between uh, NATO vessels or American vessels and, and Russian vessels. But if there was, it would be a clear case of Russian aggression, right? I mean, we, we, we have had the Berlin airlift, Right, I mean, Joe Biden, with this mentality, we would never have done the Berlin airlift.
1: No, and and it's kind of important to establish the principle: you don't get, if you're an aggressive dictator, to sort of shut down the other country's commerce as well, and you don't get to shut down third-party nations whether it's us or coalition of the willing so to speak or nato engaging in humanitarian efforts to help both the economy of ukraine which has been attacked but also of of other countries by making sure the grain doesn't rot in silos so no i think it's i think they're they're too timid on this and maybe they'll change a little bit um i think but it is worrisome eric also points out experienced you know diplomat who's prepared many presidents for for summit meetings and so forth and uh knows kind of what that's like that there's a nato summit next week not the, not the single biggest news probably compared to roe v wade and all this uh sweden and finland are, have applied for membership it would be excellent to have them in it really will be a big moment of strengthening nato's deterrence this is where putin's, putin's yep. thing has backfired but turkey's objecting it's basically just a bribe i mean everyone mm-hmm. wants attention and he wants some actual you know probably some uh, practical you know aid and it's funny the biden white house is sort of well we don't want to get in the middle of this the president shouldn't get you know we have to it should be handled uh, maybe by f- other nato countries and again a slight reluctance he's the president of the united states very much in our interest hugely in our interest to have sweden and finland in and send the signal of what that suggests to the baltic nations and to putin incidentally and you know biden's got to make that happen next week and then the trip two weeks later uh to the middle east where he goes to saudi arabia and i'm very worried about that i just think uh, a it's i'm not happy about the trip period eric's a little more understanding of it but b uh, looking like a supplicant to mbs it's they should so drill weak. more it oil yeah. instead of just saying look for now we're gonna have to give many more permits here and speed up the permitting process and let people drill on public lands which we need to get gas prices down globally we need to help our european allies we need to help american consumers it just looks weak don't you think and i i feel like oh that, i think it looks very weak yeah so
0: no and it, it looks weak and looks feckless and you know and and unfortunately you know look the reality is there's not much that the president can do to bring down oil prices in the near term you're right it is it is it is an absurd gimmick the the uh, gas tax holiday you know and i was listening to some of the democrats in, in congress who were talking about you know trying to make this about you know the oil company gouging i'm not an economist but you know we are talking about a global uh, a global marketplace and there is a kind of a feeling of flailing around about it as opposed to uh something else but you know, unfortunately your, your point about saudi arabia not only is it you know morally problematic but but i think it will highlight um the gas price problem and his inability to do anything about it so it's morally problematic and it will signal this kind of of weakness which is unfortunate.
1: So. Yeah, and I think Putin sees that incidentally and thinks, gee, M- MBS was awfully unpopular three or four years ago when he had Khashoggi murdered. Uh, but you know what? If I just hang in there, they'll come back to me too, because you well, know, mm-hmm. economics and oil and gas trump everything and so it's a little bit of a stretch and Putin's not mbs or vice versa but still i i worry about that signal as well
0: and if trump comes back you know i mean that's totally. like we'll, we'll all be having a podcast where we'll say can you ever imagine that uh vladimir putin would be back in the the white house that he right. would actually the american president so while you and i are speaking um supreme court is handing down decisions uh the the term is almost set at end everybody's waiting for dobbs which is the big roe versus Wade decision it did not come down today but uh, we did get a a relatively big gun case. Uh, the Supreme Court, on uh, a vote of six to three, struck down the New York gun control law that required people to show proper cause to get a license to carry a concealed handgun outside the home. This is not surprising at all, but obviously it's interesting that, given everything that's happening right now, that they are weakening gun laws. But uh, how is I? Mean, I have to admit, I am surprised by this bipartisan gun safety legislation that's going through the Senate. I just assume that it would blow up like it has every other time in the past. Are you surprised that you, you think it would happen? I mean, it's a good thing. It shows grownups can get in the room and legislate And it is a big setback for the the NRA, but were you surprised that they were able to put together 64 votes in the Senate for this piece of legislation?
1: I mean, one has to be surprised these days when they Uh, put together 64 votes (laughs) for anything. And maybe it's a heralds, maybe a little bit something similar on the Electoral Count Act, which again, isn't going to solve anything, just like everything, just like this gun control legislation doesn't solve everything, but it would be good for the country, honestly, and good for the particular issues. To have some strengthening, obviously, of our electoral guardrails. You'd think after these January 6 hearings, that would be pretty much a no-brainer. So I think it's a little heartening. And I some Democrats I notice are complaining. How could you give the Republicans this victory? It takes them yeah. off the hook. I don't agree with that though entirely. i mean, it's split the Republicans. where uh, Roger J. L. Green is campaigning against it. Ted Cruz is denouncing the other senators for going along with it. And I think it anything that splits your opponents is good even if it gives some of them a little bit of a talking point there aren't many who are for re-election who went with it it's actually the republicans still think marco rubio i mean it was up for re-election in florida i mean he doesn't have a primary i would have thought he would be okay with this kind of you know very modest gun control legislation the way john cornyn is and rubio's against it i really wonder if that's a popular position in florida where the parkland shooting took place incidentally
0: i i think that's interesting bill crystal thank you so much for joining me on the podcast i'm looking forward to listening and watching your conversation with eric edelman and of course we'll all be watching today's uh, january 6th committee hearing and wait on what the supreme court's going to do over the next week thanks for joining me today my pleasure charlie the bulwark podcast is produced by katie cooper with audio production by jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.